Turn with me to the second psalm, Psalm 2, this morning. We will not go through every psalm. I know I said there would be select psalms, and you're thinking, oh, now he's in Psalm 2. That means he's going to go through every one of them. That would take us three and a half years to do 150 psalms. We're not going to do that. So we're just going to do some select ones. But Psalm 2, like Psalm 1, sets such a good pace for this study, the book of Psalms. I met a man not long ago who very confidently with a smile looked me in the eye and said, I'm an atheist. And then this week I talked to a friend of mine who was taking some classes at the college here, and one of his classmates in this class uh, spent some of the time publicly in the class talking about how worthless Christianity was and that all the clergymen should be killed. Now, I bet you have met people who will deny the existence of God, will, will pass off the idea of God as passe, irrelevant, or simply unintellectual. And uh, that's their position, at least when everything's A-OK. But when everything's not A-OK, when they're pressed against the wall, when they're down to the wire, they may sing a different kind of a song. I heard about an airline flight in 1968. They were making a routine flight to New York. As they were coming closer to their destination, the pilot realized that he couldn't get the landing gear down. Try as he may, even manually, that would not go down or engage. He radioed the tower and asked for advice. In the meantime, they responded quickly by foaming the runway and by sending out emergency vehicles preparing for the inevitable. Disaster was minutes away. The pilot went over on the loudspeaker to the passengers, told them what was going on, and said, please, now we're approaching landing. Uh, Tuck your head between your knees. Grab your ankles. And then as they got closer and closer, it was one of those I-can't-believe-this-is-happening experiences. As they got closer and closer to the runway, he got on the PA again, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, we're making our final descent, which aren't really good words because they think it is their final descent. But he said, in accordance with the International Code of Geneva, the International Aviation Code, it is my duty to remind you that if you believe in God, you should now commence prayer. The plane went down on its belly without landing gear. No one was injured, but the plane was badly damaged. The next day, one of the relatives of one of the passengers who heard about this prayer ruling called the airlines and said, could you tell me again what that pilot said? The only response they got was this, no comment. Interesting. One day, if you believe in God, commence prayer. Next day, no comment. The only thing that gets the oh God response in some people's life is a crisis. Many people will give God no airtime at all except in cussing, profane language, derisive language. Until they're really, really down to the wire. Then, oh God! Psalm 2 is God's response when man rebels outwardly on earth. When man would shake his fist at God, when man would act very prideful and arrogant, it's God's calm response in heaven 
to man's rebellion upon the earth. We see that God laughs at it. But also that God loves man enough to send his son for them and begs them to turn from their folly. Psalm 2 begins then with a question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Some look at Psalm 2 as originating in perhaps the life of King David. Or some other king. It doesn't say who wrote it, but it's supposed that perhaps this refers to the coronation of King David. However, just by reading this psalm, you can see that some of the language and the description doesn't fit any earthly king, including King David. In fact, most of the ancient rabbis said that this is a messianic psalm, and that's how most Christians take it, by the way. A psalm that describes the reign of the Messiah. And reading the psalm from the vantage point of one person really doesn't make much sense. It seems as you read it that there are different speakers, different ones involved. And the best way to see it is that it's divided up into four distinct parts, four actors in sort of a mini-drama. First the world speaks, then the father responds, then the son quotes the father And then there is lastly an invitation, which I take as the role of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's look at it that way. Let's look at the rebellion of the nations in verses 1 through 3, and we'll make comment on it. Why do the nations rage? Good question. And the people plot or plan a vain, a foolish, an empty thing. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, And this is what the rebellious world says. Notice, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. What a picture this is. It's a picture of a rebellious world saying of God, of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we want nothing to do with them. We want nothing to do with the Lord and His Christ, His anointed. It's a foolish picture of a world filled with people that God made, breathing the air God gave to them, living the life God gave them to enjoy, saying, we want nothing to do with God at all. It's like an international ACLU convention. We don't want God controlling us. 
We want no restraint whatsoever. We don't want God or church, preacher or Christian telling us how to live our lives. That's the picture. From the beginning of man's existence on the earth, man has sought in the name of freedom to distance himself from God. Happened with our first parents in the garden. And really, if you think about it, and you look carefully at verses 1 through 3, here is a perfect picture of sin. What is sin? Sin is simply self-exaltation, self-will. My will above God's will. That's all it is. At its root, at its essence, it's me more than anything else. Remember the first commandment that is the greatest commandment followed by the second greatest commandment? The first is, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength. Second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's God's order. Love God first. Love others second. Self last. Sin reverses the order. Self first. And if I have any time and it's not too inconvenient, you second. And last, if there's any time at all, perhaps God. Sin then is the reversal of God's order to love Him first. Sin says I love myself first. And that here is a picture of sin. And notice who's involved. Nations, people, kings, rulers. In other words, this is a national as well as an individual obsession to be free from God. It's the philosophy of humanism. Look at the tenets of humanism. And notice how they are against everything we are for and they are for everything the Bible is against. One Humanist William Ernest Henley in his famous poem Invictus wrote these words, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now please notice in these verses, this is not a generic rebellion. It's not an antagonism toward the God concept. It's very, very specific. It's very, very targeted rebellion. It says it's against the Lord and His anointed. The word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, where we get the term Messiah. The Greek translation, Christos, Christ. The best translation that we would understand is the rebellion is against the Lord and His Christ. It's against God and Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that it's okay to be spiritual these days? It's encouraged, in fact, as long as you're spiritual generically. You can be New Age, you can believe in Spiritism, you can believe even in Buddhism, you can believe in Taoism or Hinduism. There's two words this post-Christian society doesn't like. Jesus Christ. I'll prove it. Go into a room sometime as people are just mulling around having conversations, small talk, and just drop those words. Jesus Christ. You will drop a bomb in that meeting. 
Try it sometime. It's interesting, interesting effect. Have you noticed when people swear, it's never, Oh, Buddha! (laughs) It's Jesus. Chuck Colson in his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, said, The print medium often intentionally distorts what we write. Over the years since I became a Christian, I have always deliberately explained that I have, quote, accepted Jesus Christ, close quote. These words are invariably translated into, quote, Colson's professed religious experience, unquote. I've discovered that one major U.S. daily newspaper, as a matter of policy, will not print the two words, Jesus Christ, together. When combined, the editor says, it represents an editorial judgment. Fascinating. Those two words would be the great dividing line and cause people to stumble. It's an editorial judgment to write Jesus Christ. One single woman, beautiful, because of her profession had to do a lot of traveling, was asked if she was ever bothered by uninvited male attention. Guys ever tried to pick up on her? She said, never. I, 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 I say five words, and that stops any uninvited male attention. The inquirer said, what are the five words? She said, I simply ask, are you a born-again Christian? And that's it. That will stop most guys dead in their tracks. <laughs> I was reading this week of a couple... George and Tina Rollison from York, Pennsylvania. They recently had a child and they named their child Atheist Evolution Rollison. How'd you like to grow up with that name in school? Atheist Evolution Rollison. The couple did that as sort of a rebuttal, a response to all of those Christians who named their children biblical names. This is what they said. There's so many people named Christian or Christine. This is just one person named atheist. What the blankety blank is the difference? So it's very, very targeted. It's against the Lord and his Christ. And let me add to that, it's against all those who love the Lord and his Christ. And you've noticed that. You're a target. You're in the line of fire. And often people who have something against God, simply because you're associated with him, will get mad at you. And you've got this great flood that you're stemming, this tide that you're stemming because you love God. In fact, the world thinks you're pretty weird, especially if they knew you before. It's so strange that you don't do what they do anymore. And they've asked you, what happened to you, man? You used to be so much fun. Now you're you're weird. You're into this Jesus thing. That's what Peter said. First Peter chapter 4, he says, Of course your former friends are very surprised when you no longer join them in the wicked things that they do and they say evil things about you. You're sort of like those huge icebergs off the coast of Labrador. The iceberg jets 400 feet in the air. They move due south against the winds and the waves that move due north. How could they do that? The secret is 90% of the iceberg is below the surface and they're followed by the great currents of Labrador that move south. 
Your life is so founded on the Lord and His Christ, that hidden life of the Spirit. You can stem the tide successfully because you believe and trust in Him. As it says at the end of this psalm, Blessed, how happy, are all those who put their trust in Him. Now, notice, first of all, uh, that this pursuit against God, the psalmist says it's, it's vain, it's, it's dumb, it's empty. It says in verse 1, the people plot a vain thing. You know why it's vain? It's sheer foolishness to think that you can be free apart from authority. Uh, people will say, I want freedom. I don't want God's authority. You cannot be free apart from authority. Freedom and authority are bedfellows. For instance, what if in your city there were no laws? Now, you might think there are no laws in my city. But I mean if there were really no laws, no traffic laws, you could do whatever you want whenever you wanted to do it. You'd never get in trouble for going 120 down a side street. You wouldn't have the freedom to get out and go places. You wouldn't have the freedom to do lots of stuff that you do now. The law, the authority, helps the freedom. You cannot have liberty without authority. One person said the purpose of our life is not to find freedom, but to find our master. That's real freedom. Is when you let God control you, not when you say, I'm going to break free from him. Until you do, you will be a prison, you'll be confined to the dark little dungeon of your own ego. And what a dark place that is. I know so many people who claim to be so free, but they're so confined in such bondage. You may remember what Jesus said. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. A yoke was a a device to control an animal. Jesus was saying, let me be in charge. Let me manage your life. Turn over the keys to me. Give me the pink slip. Move over. Let me drive. And it's easy. I I guess a rebel would see the yoke of Jesus Christ as pretty stifling. But for those of us who know him, we love that yoke. We love him controlling us. It's such freedom. You will know the truth, said Jesus. The truth will set you free. Well, that's man's rebellion. Let's look at the response of the Father. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. What is God's reaction to man's arrogant words, puny man's rebellion? Does God cringe? Does God tremble in heaven? Does he hide behind heaven's walls? No, notice how calm God is. He didn't even get up. He didn't even stand. It didn't even rouse him. He sits in heaven. And it says he laughs. Now, this is not a good laughter. He's not uh, responding to a punchline. He's not going, that's a good one. This is a, a confident laugh of scorn, of derision, Now, I guess the best way to explain this is say that when it says God's la- God laughed. By the way, the book of Psalms is the only book in the Bible that pictures God as laughing. Again, never good. This is a term. This is a figurative piece of language that, that theologians call anthropomorphism. 
I know it's a, it's a million dollar word. It simply means God is written about in human language so that we as humans can relate to God. That's all. For instance, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth. It doesn't mean that God has lenses and, and uh, retina and vitreous humor that revolve around the globe all the time. Or when it says God will spread us under the shadow of his wings, that God has feathered wings that he actually stretches over the earth and you look up on a good night, you can see him. This is language to describe the emotion, the character of God. God shall laugh. In other words, man's rebellion doesn't take away from God being God. He's still God. He's still in control. He's still sovereign. His judgments are still certain, whether people receive them, respond to them or not. God shall laugh because it's vain to rebel against God. Because even the strongest, most powerful ruler who would rebel against God, God is still in control. That's why it's dumb. There was a guy who thought himself rather powerful. His name was Caesar Augustus. He gave himself the title. It means Caesar of the gods. Oh, and he loved it when people said, hey, of the gods. Yeah, that's me. Mr. of the gods. And he thought that he could consolidate his kingdom and give a decree that the whole world should be taxed, go under a census, which would mean the entire known world under his control, population masses would have to move to go back to the town of their origin. And he thought, look at how powerful I am. Well, really, he wasn't that powerful. He was a pawn on God's chessboard. You see, the prophecies of Scripture said the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, but while Mary was pregnant, she was still in Nazareth. That's where they lived with Mary and Joseph. Well, we have a problem. How do we get the Messiah born in Bethlehem? As the scripture says, easy. Just have this guy have a decree that the world should be taxed, which will move Joseph and Mary to the home of their forefather, King David, Bethlehem. He was a pawn on God's chessboard. Then there was a guy by the name of Domitian, an anti-Christian Roman ruler, who thought that he would slow down the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And he put John on an island called Patmos. We'll shut him up a while. God spoke to him, gave us the book of Revelation, which speaks of the ultimate victory of Jesus over every ruler of the earth. It encouraged Christians. It brought many to faith in Jesus Christ. Then there was another emperor by the name of Diocletian who minted a coin saying he has taken all of the Christians away from the empire. He expanded his kingdom westward to Spain Two monuments were erected in his honor. One said this, Diocletian, for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. On another monument, these words, Diocletian, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. There's a guy who set himself up as king, as ruler, as one who would say, I'll break the shackles. But eventually Christianity overcame even the throne of the Caesars itself. William Plummer, quoted by Charles Spurgeon, said, Of the 30 Roman emperors and officials known for persecuting Christians, one became deranged, one was killed by his own son, one became blind, one was drowned, one was strangled, one died a miserable captivity, one died so loathsome a disease that several attending physicians couldn't stand the stench that accompanied it. Two committed suicide, third attempted it, had to call for help to finish it. 
Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Eight killed in battle or taken captive. Several died of various other diseases. One of these was Julian, called Julian the Apostate. It is said on his better days would point a dagger up to heaven, defying the Son of God, until he was wounded in battle. And close to his death as he was bleeding, took a puddle of his own clotted blood and threw it in the air and said, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. Then there was in the 18th century, the 1700s, Voltaire, the French atheist, one of the greatest writers of his time, a declared atheist. He said, quote, Within 20 years, with my own pen, I will undo all that it took the 12 apostles years to build. It's pretty arrogant. He died. Within a few years of his death, his own home, which he wrote that in, was used as a distribution center to pass Bibles out in Europe. So God wasn't up there wringing his hand going, Oh, God, what am I going to do? This Diocletian and Voltaire dudes, not a problem. It's like, confident. And he has something to say besides that. It says, then he will speak to them in his wrath. When? Then. When is then? Not immediately, but one day. You see, at first, God will not intervene. You won't see rebellion stopped. As soon as somebody raises their sword or blasphemes or shakes their fist, God won't blow the whistle and have Gabriel or Michael come in and just pound them, hard one. You'll see God as being very patient, letting it go. In fact, I think one of the greatest judgments is not to send fire from heaven, but just let men do what they choose to do and suffer the consequences. Our third vice president, Aaron Burr, raised in a godly home by Christian parents, In fact, his grandfather was Jonathan Edwards, beckoned him to come to Christ. He refused, 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 grew up, became very politically astute and famous. Toward the end of his life, very regretfully, he said, 60 years ago, I said, God, if you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And he said, regretfully, God has left me alone ever since. He thought it would be true freedom, and it was such bondage. Remember, Paul the Apostle said that God will give them over to their own desires. And that's a prison. But there's another response to this. Not only does God laugh, not only will God speak in his wrath one day. In verse 6, he says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God's response to rebellious man is not just to laugh it off but to send his son. And if you look back through history, there was one time when God sent his son to Zion, to Jerusalem. It's when he sent his son to deal with our sin and die on the cross on Mount Zion. And ever since that time, God has been speaking in his grace and in his mercy and patience. He's been holding out nail-scarred hands to people, saying, come. But one day, the grace ceases. One day, as we've already read in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, the day of God's wrath will come. And we've already read in great detail how God speaks to the earth in his wrath and in his displeasure. And so, the best response to God is not to rebel, but to respond 
to the sending of his son. You might say, why is that the best response? Well, let's read on. We come now in verse 7 to the rule of the son. And there's a change of voice here. It seems pretty obvious when you get into it. I will declare the decree the Lord said to me. Now, the Lord was just speaking, but now this one says, The Lord says to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The Father has said to this one, You're my son. I've begotten you. Sounds very much like the baptism of Jesus, doesn't it? When the heavens broke open and a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. And at the transfiguration of Jesus, when Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah changed with Jesus, the Father said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It also sounds like the conversation Jesus had with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi when he popped the question, Who do men say that I am? They went down the list. Well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter, in a rare flash of brilliance and inspiration, said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, bingo. That's paraphrased. (laughs) He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's the right answer. I am the Son. And so this one speaks. This Father said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the end of the earth for your possession. And then his authority is given. See, the first time God sent his son to Zion, he sent him to be crucified. But there will come a time in the future where Jesus will return to this earth permanently to set up his kingdom and to rule with a rod of iron, which means an absolute rule by force, not by choice anymore. Everything will be under subjection in that millennial kingdom. He says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Before we move on to the last voice in verse 10 through 12, I see this little phrase, this sentence, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, as sort of a missionary mandate for you and I. The father is saying to the son, and the son is quoting him, that the son will get, as part of his heritage, people, nations, from pagan places, Gentile places, around the world. You and I have the honor of sharing the gospel with people in this town, in other parts of America, in other continents. We can support missionaries. We can go as places. We can share so that every person we help lead to Christ, we're adding to the inheritance that Jesus will get of people, of souls. What an awesome, awesome privilege to glorify God in that manner. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Fourthly and finally, we come to this fourth voice, fourth person speaking. I've called it the role of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 10. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
kiss the son or do homage or worship the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed or oh how happy are all those who put their trust in him. So now the narrator comes back on. The world has said we don't want God. The father has responded by saying I'm going to send my son. The son has said I'm going to be in charge of everything because the father said so. And now the narrator comes and pleads with people to be wise, to be instructed, to turn, to change. Now, we don't know who wrote this. It doesn't say at the beginning of the psalm. It doesn't say a psalm of David or Asaph. We do know that ultimately the author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. We also know from the New Testament, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come and testify of me and draw people to me. That's his role. So I think it's best to see this in a prophetic template as this is the role of the Holy Spirit through history, telling people, come to the Son, worship Him, come to Christ, beckoning people to come, to kiss the Son. He first of all appeals to the mind. He says, be wise. Or we might translate this, wise up, rulers. Get smart, people. Cop a clue, world. Be instructed, he says. In other words... You want to be smart, don't run from God. No matter how intellectual you may seem, to run from God and say, I want nothing to do with God, is pretty lame. It's dumb. You want to be smart, follow Him. Romans 1 speaks of those who profess themselves to be wise, but they become fools. What is the ultimate knowledge? It's the knowledge of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. There's always a relationship between God and knowledge. And since God made everything that is knowable, to know everything but God is folly. Think of Harvard University when they first started out. They were devoted to preaching the gospel. And the crest of Harvard University showed three books opened, one faced down to show the limitation of human knowledge. On the crest it read, Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae. Translated, truth for Christ and his church. What a great banner. That was Harvard. Look at it today. The crest has changed a little bit. It's been modified. The book that was face down is now faced up, showing the unlimited capacity of the human spirit. And the one word is left, veritas, just truth. Not for Christ, just truth. Now, pursuit of knowledge is praiseworthy. Apart from God, it's foolish. It's lame. Wise up. Be instructed. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Then he appeals to the will by saying, Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Did you know that serving the Lord always brings joy? Because when you serve the Lord, you have a reason to get up every day. You have a purpose in life. You're going somewhere. Your life is under his yoke, and what a good yoke it is. It's a good reason to live. The secret to a fulfilling life is setting your priorities, keeping in step with his plan for your life. Many people go, I want joy. Surrender to God. Serve him. Interesting. A poll was taken in the United States by, I don't know if it was Gallup or or one of the major polling institutions. A cross-section of Americans asked them one question. What do you want out of life? They were stunned by the responses. They thought the response would be uh, money, looks, 
Or I want to marry somebody with money, looks. Instead, the overwhelming majority said, I want love, peace, joy. Sound familiar? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy. People want what God wants for them, but they don't know how to get it. Love, peace, joy is a byproduct of knowing, loving, and serving God and His Christ. That's God's plan for them. So why should you rage against God and His Christ? Why not embrace God and His Christ? Why not embrace the one with nail-scarred hands who is reaching out to you? Finally, he appeals to the heart. He says, kiss the son. And then finally, in the end, blessed, oh, how happy. Oh, to be envied are all those who put their trust in him. That's happiness. So I guess, to boil it all down, there's two basic roads you could choose to God saying, let me control you. Let me put my yoke of control on you. You could rebel and say, no way. I'm the captain of my soul. You could rebel against God and incur his wrath and his displeasure. And he has the right to do it. He made you. Or B, the second response, you could run to him, retreat to him, and enjoy the blessing of salvation, the joy of walking with him. I read about a lawyer. No offense if you're a lawyer. This is not a lawyer joke. An antagonistic, unbelieving lawyer had a plaque in his office over his desk that said, God is nowhere. Very proudly, he sported this plaque. Well, one day his daughter was in the office waiting for dad to pack up and go home and notice the plaque and just, you know, like father, like daughter, just wrote what she saw over and over again. She copied that motto on a piece of paper. But inadvertently... She copied it a little bit wrong and spaced the letters in such a way that it changed the whole meaning. She wrote, God is now here. She put a space between the W and the H. And just one little step, one little space changed the whole meaning. God is nowhere. God is now here. God is now here. God made here. The wisest thing, the smartest thing, is to submit to Him, to serve Him, and to enjoy Him. When you do that, you never have to wait till the landing gear won't come down to talk to Him. You have a relationship. You have a relationship. You have a relationship. You have a relationship.